This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and the author of How to Be a Liberal. And I'm joined today by Ian Dale, broadcaster, publisher, commentator, LBC radio host, blogger, former parliamentary candidate, basically the renaissance man of British politics. <laughs> Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm very well. Um, and all you forgot that I'm usually confused with you or you're confused with me. I don't know which way it is. But, uh. I mean, how in this day and age can people fail to realise the fundamental distinction between two eyes and one? In the <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> it may be the hairstyle. I mean, that might have something to do with it. <laughs> what, what hairstyle? What hair? <laughs> the hairstyle that God inflicted upon us. Right. <laughs> Uh, you've just edited the Prime Minister's 55 essays about our 55 Prime Ministers. Long period, right? I mean, it's a 300-year period. Was there any kind of, uh, I guess, what were the continuities and, and what were the changes that you noticed? Well, the reason I did it is because um, Sir Robert Walpole became Prime Minister in April 1721. So next April is the 300th anniversary of the office. If uh-huh. you accept that he was the first Prime Minister, that there were people before him that you could have given that title to, but he was the first one that was awarded it. He didn't actually like it. He regarded it as an insult. And the interesting thing is that the phrase Prime Minister wasn't actually used formally in legislation until 1905 under Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman. So it, it was one of those things that some people used it and some people didn't until comparatively recently. But th- th- I suppose the interesting thing is if you look at all 55 Prime Ministers, uh, how do you compare Walpole, for example, with Theresa May? It's virtually impossible in some ways because, well, I mean, for all sorts of reasons, but um, the, the, the you, you have to look at the time that the person was prime minister and of course in the 18th century you didn't have the media challenges that a modern day prime minister has in fact clement attlee didn't have those challenges and you could easily argue that clement attlee i think we can all agree would be in our top 10 list of prime ministers mm-hmm. but he, he wouldn't stand a hope of becoming prime minister today would he because he he just wouldn't be able to handle the 24-hour news media he wouldn't be able to handle social media um he famously didn't really like doing any interviews at all and um, an interviewer would ask him a question and I I, I remember seeing a video or a clip of him being asked um, is there anything else you'd like to say Prime Minister and he said I don't think so no (laughs) (laughs) I mean you just wouldn't be able to get away with that now Um, but on the other hand there are comparisons to be made there are domestic policy challenges or foreign policy challenges. Virtually all the prime ministers in the first part of the book had to handle military conflict in one way or another. Now, in recent years, obviously, we've had a fair few prime ministers have to have to do that. Um, Cameron, Blair, uh, Thatcher, Major, uh, Boris, not so much yet, thank goodness. Um, but that may come, you never know. What's this, um, the thing you alluded to earlier of, of the d- dispute over when the office sort of becomes live, when it becomes a real job title? 
Well, I think because Walpole had he was there for twenty one years, and it was only really, I suppose, in the in the latter years of his um, term in office that he'd become so established, and he was. Definitely primus inter pares, first among equals. We, we, we use that phrase nowadays to describe the prime minister uh, as the leader of the cabinet. Uh, and over the centuries, obviously, the prime ministerial power has ebbed and flowed and waned or whatever, depending on the circumstances of the time, depending on the strength of the prime minister. John Major would say that he restored proper cabinet government after Margaret Thatcher's period in office, where she was the dominant figure in the cabinet. There are a lot of myths about her um, silencing the cabinet. Um, you remember that, those spitting image sketches. Uh, she actually quite liked a good, robust discussion in cabinet, but the, the everyone thinks that she just basically laid out her stall, basically said to the cabinet, you agree, don't you? They all nodded yes, and uh, and off they proceeded. It, it wasn't like that at all. Um, Tony Blair and his uh, government really didn't have cabinet government in the traditional way he he had little subgroups of ministers that he would meet in his um on his sofa in his office and uh, the cabinet was just effectively a rubber stamping committee that has changed a little bit but even under boris johnson i, I wouldn't say that you have a a standard cabinet set up where you have a group of ministers who are not shall we say, the robust, most robust of people, don't challenge. They, they're, they're virtually all original supporters of his. And y- you get the feeling that there, there isn't a lot of back and forth. Um, mm. In Theresa May's cabinet, I think there were genuine discussions. Uh, obviously, <laughs> they didn't amount to much in the end. They didn't uh, never seemed to come to any degree of consensus. But um, her problem was that although she was prime minister, she never appeared to be. And the, at the end of a cabinet meeting, everyone had had their say, but they never knew what she thought. And so they all went away, not quite knowing what had happened and not knowing what would go on. So that is part of the makeup of a prime minister, to know how to handle your cabinet and to make sure that you have got the cabinet on side before you have the meeting, in a sense, I suppose. But that does partly depend on how strong you are as a political leader. Are there any party consistencies? So, I mean, like sort of Whigs or Labour prime ministers kind of share problems that are qualitatively different to the ones that you see sort of facing Tory prime ministers through the ages? I I think Labour prime ministers always have a problem in that Labour is always seen as the party of economic mismanagement. Now, you could argue under Tony Blair that changed to a large degree because of Gordon Brown. But then, of course, came the world financial crash. And however much you say, well, Gordon Brown was the right prime minister at the right time and, and really did a good job in handling that, the history books will show that that was the one thing that uh, that government will be remembered for. And you can argue, yes, it started in America, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But he, he was the wrong prime minister at the right time. Well, the right prime minister at the wrong time, in a sense. Um, somebody asked me the other day, what would have happened if Gordon Brown had become Prime Minister in 1997 and Tony Blair had taken over in 2007. It's an interesting and, question. And I said, well, actually, uh, the, 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 the financial crisis wouldn't have been handled as well, probably, because Tony Blair mm-hmm. was not an economic expert in any shape or form. But it, it's on these vagaries of politics that, that successful or unsuccessful premierships hang. You need to be a lucky Prime Minister. And, and I think, in a way... You look at Jim Callaghan, who had had a huge amount of experience. He'd held all three major offices of state. He became prime minister at the wrong time. And 
he wasn't able to dictate events. He had, he led effectively a minority government for most of his time in office. It was a terrible time for strikes. And I remember going on a school trip to Germany and the Germans laughed at us because they just thought we were the sick man of Europe. It was almost embarrassing to be a Brit overseas. You might say, <laughs> Ian, that that's the same now. <laughs> um, but, I mean, Jim Callaghan was an unlucky prime minister, whereas Margaret Thatcher, you could argue, was a very lucky prime minister in that events conspired to help her win three election victories, the winter of discontent, first of all. The Falklands War, I think, helped her win a massive majority. I think she would have won a big majority anyway. The, the split in the opposition when the SDP formed their alliance with the Lib Dems and left Labour, that enabled her to know that she was going to be Prime Minister for quite a long time. And when you've got that certainty of tenure, you can actually do some radical things. And party management isn't as important as it is if you are, have a very small majority or not even a majority at all. And I think that is the, the one common thread between all premiers. Whether you're a premier in 1754, where you have to keep the, the king on side, or whether you're a premier in 2017, when you have to keep try and make sure your party is, to some degree, on side, um, you've got all of these external influences. And a lot of prime ministers are always paranoid about the people that are trying to replace them. And Harold Wilson, I suppose, is the most modern exemplar of that, where he, he constantly thought that the big beasts in his cabinet were conspiring against him. Now, just because you're paranoid, you, you aren't paranoid, it doesn't mean that they aren't out to get you. And some, some of them were. And he was very successful in, in actually combating that. But it, it, it kind of dominated his life to an extent. And I think, although I would still say that he was, in modern day terms, he was probably the third most successful Labour Prime Minister. I would say Clement Attlee, Tony Blair, Harold Wilson. Well, you can argue about Harold Wilson and Tony Blair, which one should go where. But he, he could have been even more successful had he not spent so much time worrying about plots. Is Boris Johnson lucky, do you think? I mean, I was listening to you just now and I was thinking, you know, in terms of the makeup, the majority, all of that sort of thing, he obviously seems very lucky. But in terms of the events, I mean, the coronavirus doesn't seem like the kind of event that, I mean, quite apart from, you know, anything else it's doing to us and all of that, it doesn't seem the kind of event that's designed for his particular skill set. No, I think that's probably right. And and that's where events can dictate things as, as well as luck. When Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, he would have imagined that his legacy would all be to do with Brexit, for good mm. or ill. But he won't go down as the Brexit Prime Minister, I don't think. I think he will go down as the COVID Prime Minister. Now, it's too early to judge. I mean, I, I've written the chapter on Boris in the book, and I've tried. It's quite difficult to analyse a premiership which hasn't even ended, but I've done my best. And I've, I've tried to, I've tried to be as even-handed as I can be because I, I mean, I've never been a Boris Johnson fan. I, I think he was a reasonable mayor of London, but I think there is a difference between being mayor of London and prime minister. And some of the mm. successes he had in terms of administration as mayor of London, I think. Um, have gone by the way just uh, you you can't the way that he's formed his number 10 team and we're recording this a couple of days after Dominic Cummings has uh, departed echoes his first year as mayor of London which was a disaster in terms of a lot of the people that he appointed but he then brought in a new team and he I think one of the things here is all prime ministers have to recognize their own strengths and weaknesses and I think 
rather like George W. Bush when he became president. He he really did construct a cabinet of all the talents which compensated for some of his own weaknesses. And I think Boris Johnson tried to do that as mayor of London um, sort of after the first year. And that's what he's really got to do now. But he, nobody believes he's a details man. But in a sense, that's a strength as prime minister. Gordon Brown and Theresa May were dogged by the detail. They, they, the civil service couldn't get decisions out of them. And there's one thing that civil servants do like, and that is a secretary of state or, as a, pro, or a prime minister who makes decisions that they can then implement. And I get the feeling that Boris Johnson is a better decision maker. But in, the, in a COVID crisis, you do kind of need to be on top of the details. And I think, the, should we say, being kind, the jury is still open as to whether that is the case. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, Boris Johnson obviously like, likes to compare himself to, to Churchill and has written about him extensively. I mean, do, do you think that comparison holds up? Yes and no. Um, look, every prime minister wants to be a Churchill. Boris Johnson is no different in that. But he's written a book on Churchill and he knows an awful lot about him. And you can sometimes detect Ch- Churchillian cadences in his rhetoric and in, in his speech. But... Uh, I mean, what, what, can you really compare coronavirus with the, the challenge that the country faced in 1940? I don't think so. And, and of course, we remember Churchill went down to a great defeat in 1945. And if Boris Johnson did lose the 2024 election, um, that could be of equal uh, significance because the, the, the task that the Labour Party has in, nine, in t- 2024 um, is almost equivalent, I guess, to what, what it achieved in 1945. So I suspect that Keir Starmer will be reading a lot of biographies of Clement Attlee over the next couple of years. Presumably, I mean, going through this, I was trying to think, just as I was preparing for this, I was thinking, well, how many prime ministers could I name? And I don't think I could reach, even, I probably couldn't do more than 25 at tops. Was there anyone that you sort of, we're really not aware of a tool going into this that, that you, you think is now criminally underrated or, or should be spoken about a bit more? Well, one of the things that I found when I first had the idea for the book, I realised that there were some prime ministers I'd never heard of. Mm. And people would consider you and me as, as the ultimate political geeks. But the fact that we, we, we don't know mm. some of them or we can't name just off the top of our heads um, pro- probably more than 25 or 30 tells me that there is a lot of appetite for uh, information about some of these people. The one that I was quite taken by was the Earl of Derby, who was three times Prime Minister in the the middle of the 19th century. And it seemed to me, after reading what Nigel Fletcher had written about him and then comparing what Edward Young had written about Disraeli, that actually, in terms of the Conservative Party, the Earl of Derby was actually a far more significant figure than Disraeli. Um, which go, completely goes against the the narrative that Disraeli is the hero of every modern conservative, one nation, and all the rest of it. Well, it was actually the Earl of Derby who who had far more influence. He was leader of the Conservative Party for twenty two years, and effectively brought it into the the then modern era. And I, I think he's somebody. One, one of the aims of this book is to enable people to read a few thousand words on, on a subject and then think, oh, I'd like to read more about them and then go and read a proper biography of them because mm-hmm. most of the, the essays are, depending on the length of office or the importance, between 1,500 and I think six or 7,000 words. Hopefully, people will look at some of these and think, like Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, we all think 
that the modern welfare state was started by Lloyd George. Well, it wasn't. It was actually Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, followed by Asquith. They had uh, Lloyd George got the glory because he implemented a lot of it, but actually it all started under Campbell Bannerman and Asquith, something I must admit I didn't really know. So again, there, there is so much that you you can you can get from some of these essays and think, well, why do I have such a superficial knowledge of some of these characters, and particularly the ones in the in the um, 18th century? William Pitt the Younger. Now, okay, he got a resurrection through William Hague's biography, which I, I must admit I haven't read. But again, reading the essay on him, I thought, well, what a significant figure. And, and he would have to be in the top five prime ministers of all time. And yet, I think few of us really know an awful lot about him. Lord North, another one. We all think of him as the man who lost the col- uh, lost America, lost the colonies. Yeah, he did. So therefore, he has to go down as a, a pretty low-ranking prime minister. But domestically, he was actually really successful. So you you have to slightly reevaluate some of your um, pre some preconsidered opinions, I guess. Doing this um, this ranking of the fifty five M- uh, PMs uh, outside outside of the book, I'm kind of fascinated by this. I, don't, I, I I'm desperate to know what the rating criteria is. It, is it like top trumps? Basically, are you giving well, marks for five different categories? The, the the problem with doing this is that it, it's an impossible task. There is no science to it at all. It all has to be based on opinion. So what I did was, I, I mean, it goes back to the first thing that we said, really. How do you compare Sir Robert Walpole with Boris Johnson? Well, the only way to do it is to make the criteria so wide um, that what, what doesn't apply to one in one regard will pl- apply in another. So I created 60 different categories where the authors of the essays had to give the marks out of 10, 20, or 30, depending on what it was. So not just for foreign policy, economic policy, domestic policy. I put in things like compassion, empathy, humour. Now, for some of them, it's virtually impossible to mark, but you've got to come up with some way of trying to do it. So I got all of the um, essayists to do that, and then I got together five of them, and and we, we basically went through them and tried to work out an order partly based on those marks. But, I mean, there were some. If you write an essay on somebody, presumably you're quite a fan of theirs, so you, you probably overmark them a bit. Mm. Um, so we had to do a little bit of shuffling. And, look, you, if you were doing this yourself, you would come up with an entirely different list to the one that we've come up with. Everybody would. The whole point of doing it is to provoke a bit of debate. So, I mean, I've got the top uh, six, Churchill, Gladstone, Pitt the Younger, Thatcher, Attlee, Lloyd George. Now, other people would put other prime ministers in in the top six or, or put those in a completely different order. But that's the fun of doing something like this. This is not an academic project. And it, 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 I said to all the authors, do not write, some of them were academics, but I said, do not write this for fellow academics. Write this for people who are interested in politics, but possibly don't really know much about your subject. So it, it is meant for the general reader as well as politicos. Who wins for humour, by the way? Is it, I suppose it's going to be Disraeli. I think probably Churchill, actually. Huh, yeah. a, a lot of his humour was actually rehearsed, though, wasn't it? I, I'm not sure he came out with much that was spontaneous, whereas Disraeli certainly did. And Margaret Thatcher's humour was usually un, unintended. Although she... <laughs> 
<laughs> Again, there are so many myths that grow up about all the prime ministers, but what, one of the myths about her is that she uh, had no sense of humour whatsoever. She did, but she kept it well hidden, let's say. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about blogs. I mean, when, I remember when you sort of, you know, really first hit the limelight. It was, it was as you know, the the blogs guy. Do you think that there's been any change since then? You know, sort of 2005 time, really, in that medium. Do you, is it growing? Is it starting to drift away? What, what do you think is going on with it? Well, I don't know about you, but at, the, at that point, I would look at probably five or ten blogs every single day. I, I don't anymore. In fact, I hardly look at any. Now that is because. Blogs were taken over by two things. First of all, the mainstream media took over blogging, um, having derided people like me in 2005 as failed journalists or wannabe journalists who sat in their bedrooms typing away because they had nothing better to do. Um, they They then worked out that actually they needed to join the party. And when they joined the party, they took over the party. So if you remember, The Telegraph had a huge number of bloggers. The, the Daily Mail did. The Guardian had their comment is free section. And slowly but surely, independent blogging died a death. And I, I gave it up on a daily basis in 2010, partly because I got the job with LBC and there just weren't enough hours in the day. But also, Twitter had started as well. And Twitter is blogging on acid in, in a way. <laughs> If you, if you think about it, because when blogging started, I, mean, I, I remember when I first discovered what a blog was, I was in Washington, and a friend of mine showed me his blog. And I instantly got what it could do, because up until that point, I'd got a website, but if I wanted to change anything on it, I had to send it to my website guy, who might then take three days to, to put something up. Well, a blog, you could do it almost instantaneously. So um, I, I started... I think it was in 2002, 2003, I can't remember. And then when I finished working for David Davis in 2005, that was when I really started doing it properly and three, four, five times a day sometimes. And Mm -hmm. it got a certain notoriety. There was Guido Fawkes, conservative homie, Tim Montgomery and myself. And we got huge amounts of attention from the mainstream media. And I had done media stuff before, but the blog took it to a different level. And But the left were nowhere in the world of blogging. Mm-hmm. And it was really only, I would say, after 2010 that they really got their act together on, on blogging and social media and Twitter. And I, I would say nowadays the left are probably ahead of the right in a lot of these things. But blogging at, at the moment, it, it, it's fairly insignificant as an I- influential medium, I, th- I think. I think Twitter is, is far more influential. Do you think something has been lost there? Do you think it's, it's a symptom of, of a kind of political communication, the kind of political debate and information transfer that we're missing out on? I, I do in a way because I, I much I enjoy blogging much more than I enjoy Twitter. I, I regard Twitter now as something I have to do rather than something that I want to do. Um, it, it is a vile, disgusting medium. In, in many ways. Now, it, it's, a, it's a great medium in others, and there are things that I get out of it that if it didn't exist, I, I, w- I wouldn't be able to do. But it's so easy to be misunderstood on Twitter. It's so easy to get into a row with somebody. Um, and I have tried my best over the past year or so to really moderate what I do on Twitter because I found that I was getting into needless rows. And you think, why? I remember um, I was in bed half past midnight laptop on the pillow and i was having a row over brexit with with an egg with four followers and i, <laughs> and I, 
I did think to myself, what has it come to? Just stop it. And um, it's so difficult to get it right. And I do it because I need to do it for the kind of work I do. I do it to promote my program. I do it to promote my books. I do it to promote my, I know it's going to sound terribly pretentious, but but my brand in a way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've sold of my the book that I published earlier in the year, Why Can't We All Just Get Along, which is all about the decline of public discourse. Um, I set up a little online shop to sell signed copies because somebody said, how do I get a signed copy? And I thought, well, that's a good question. How do you? And so I just did it on iZettle, and I sold 1,400 copies. And, and mm-hmm. as you know, being an author, you can sell, you make far more money out of selling copies yourself than you ever do from royalties. So, and the Prime Minister's book, I've, I've just passed 500 copies of that. So I've started, I've redeveloped this sort of online political store, and I've, I've started commissioning political mugs and all sorts of things. So I'm actually reviving Politicos, which uh, I've commissioned a new website on, and that will go live in about a week's time. Oh, fantastic. That's good to hear. Um, where do you think we are with the Johnson administration right now? I have to ask you about current politics before we close off. Did, that Cummings departure, does that, does that seem to you as something that's going to herald a sort of more moderate, sort of less combative period? Or, or do you think it's sort of mostly superficial change? I think there will be change. Uh, we've already seen it today. Uh, Matt Hancock's appeared on Good Morning Britain. Yay! Amazing. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. it, it was simply ridiculous, these boycotts of different programmes that they undertook, because they never seemed to understand that if they didn't put ministers up to explain their policies, who else was going to do it? Now, you could argue, back in the days of blogging, you had Tim Montgomery, you had me and a few others who were kind of, I won't say surrogates, but we, we, were, we were there to say things that maybe politicians couldn't say, but we were known to be on the right and, and we were sort of broadly sympathetic to David Cameron, I suppose, some more than others. Um, but there was this sort of coterie of right-of-centre commentators that the media could go to to explain what Cameron was up to. Those people don't really exist anymore. Um, or, or not to any great degree. And and if there are right-of-centre commentators that that go on Sky News and radio programmes all the time, they tend to be ones that are that the, the media want to say something disobliging about the current administration. So um, I, if I was running the number 10 communications operation, the, the one thing I would definitely do is, is to make sure that we got as many MPs and ministers on all different programs as possible, because that's the only way that they're going to try and ex- be able to explain their message. I mean, they never actually formally boycotted my show, but I haven't had, apart from on my cross-question program, I don't think I've had a government minister on my program in several months. Now, I know why that was, because they didn't like it when there was all the exam results thing. And Gavin Williamson, when he did his U-turn, he didn't do a press conference or appear in Parliament. He, he d- gave a three-paragraph statement, which I read out on my programme and then in front of the camera proceeded to rip up because I just thought it was a disgusting way to behave. And I don't think they've ever forgiven me for that. Well, fair enough. I don't really care. I can do my programme without government ministers. But if, if, they're, if they're really trying to boycott me, somebody who most people would think was possibly more sympathetic to them than most, well, they really have got a problem. Is there What's the most direct parallel in the book that you can think of with, with the events that we saw last week? Does one stand out? 
there have been all, been all sorts of incidents where advisors have become the story. Alastair Campbell, famously, I suppose. And in the mm. end, I think his position became untenable because uh, he was the story. You look at Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, summarily dispatched after the election in 2017. And that was a sort of reset moment. And that's what this is. This is a moment for Boris Johnson to reset his government. Now, a lot will depend on who he appoints to the various positions. He's, he's appointed James Slack to replace Lee Kane. I don't know him, but everyone I know tells me that he's really brilliant and is just straight down the line. He's not somebody who plays sort of dirty political games. You've got Allegra Stratton coming in. I think, again, most people consider her to be an adult in the room. And that's what he needs from his new chief of staff, whoever that is. Somebody who immediately commands the respect, not only of everybody in Downing Street, but people outside uh, as well. And uh, as a director of strategy, I mean, that is a key appointment. Um, it, It sounds a bit of a geeky title, but that is the person who effectively advises the prime minister on the future direction of the government. Now, I don't know who that will be. And I'm not sure there's a huge long list of people who are actually qualified to do the job. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see who he appoints. And um, and the next election isn't for another three and a bit years. So there is time for the government to reset and try and get back on track. But of course, certainly over the next uh, year, everything is still going to be dominated by uh, COVID and, and the response to it. However, If it gets to the middle of next year and there is a free trade deal and the economy is in some shape or form back to some semblance of normality, I do really wonder whether Boris Johnson might think, you know what, I've done my bit, I'm off. Because I think he would enjoy being an ex-prime minister much more than he enjoys being a prime minister. He, He got the job, which he'd always wanted, but does he look as if he's enjoying it? I'm not sure he does. Mm. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> thank you very much, Ian. I look forward to being confused for you in public again. <laughs> and thank you for being on the show. Cheers. Thank you, everyone. That was your Bunker Daily. We will be back every single day of the working week from now until forevermore. Cheerio and stay safe. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Uh-huh.